Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, hosted by Dr. Sammy and Dr. Anna, two board-certified pediatricians and best friends known as the PediPals. This is a safe space where parents, caretakers, guardians, and those interested in pediatric health can find accurate parenting and medical information to raise healthy and happy children. To stay connected with us, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at The PediPals, or visit our website at www.thepdpals.com. We are so grateful to have had a successful first season where we invited widely respected experts to discuss important topics. Here's to an even better season two just for you. Hello, and thank you again for tuning in today. We are so excited to have you, and as always, super excited to talk to our next guest and to introduce her to you. So our next guest is Dr. Katherine Lewitsky. She joins us today from Michigan. She is a clinical psychologist who specializes in assessments of autism spectrum disorders, academic performance, ADHD, anxiety, giftedness, and all kinds of things that are pertinent to basically all parents. Dr. Kat is also actually a clinical director of a psychology clinic that has recently expanded. And this clinic has one goal in mind, and that is to set the goal for a superior practice. And so far, she has done a great job of accomplishing this goal. You can find her online at drcat underscore deep, and we'll go ahead and, and talk about that again later where you can find her exactly. But today we are actually going to learn more about her and her special focus on autism. So welcome, Dr. Kat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. We are too. This has been a long time coming <laughs> Yeah, so to join forces with you and talk about something that I know affects a lot, a lot of families. And um, we're really excited to kind of delve into your wisdom. Uh, but before we do, do you mind kind of telling our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, I am a clinical clinical director of a private mental health facility. We opened our doors in 2017. I'm located in the Metro Detroit area, and we're recently expanding to a second location and within that area. And, you know, a lot of it is that we receive a lot of um, demand, you know, for psychological testing. We specialize in seeing children for testing as young as 12 months all the way through adulthood. We take therapy patients as young as age three, but typically we don't see children that young, but we can, we are equipped to do so if needed. Um, and our specialty, we really have a strong focus on, um, we, of course we see patients with anxiety and depression, but since we do see children with such a large age span, especially seeing such young children, we do specialize in neurodevelopmental disorders, which means that a lot of these conditions appear in early childhood. Um, so the onset of them is within that developmental period, and we're assessing to look at things such as autism, or if it's something related to ADHD or behavioral disorder, so that that child can get better help and assistance. We are so thankful for people like you and our psychologists out there because there is a huge need, as you probably know, and pediatricians mm -hmm. like us are um, just, you know, 
searching for those resources, especially for our families with neurodivergent kids and kids with special needs. I mean, it's really, really um, uh, something that we all really, our society needs right now. Uh, But we get a lot of questions about what a psychologist does and what a psychologist is versus a psychiatrist. So if you can help make that distinction for our audience and tell us um, specifically how a psychologist is different, um, that would be great. Yeah, that's a really, um, we actually get a lot of calls asking for the reverse too. They'll call us and they want medication. So the biggest difference between it is that a psychologist typically has a PhD, you know, both have doctorate degrees, but different types, right? Psychologist has a PhD and a um, pediatrician is a medical doctor. They have an MD. So we cannot prescribe medicine, but we can provide, um, if you have specialized training, the assessment process. So we do work very closely with other doctors, psychiatrists, and especially pediatricians within the area. Um, You know, we tell our patients when they come in, we do not prescribe. You know, a lot of times, like I said, they will call asking for that, but we can provide that coordination of care with any doctor that they want to work with. We can provide a report and work with that doctor, you know, to kind of collaborate to see what would be the best fit, you know, treatment-wise for that patient. Um, So psychologists, we help, you know, when you think of a psychologist, it's like therapy counseling aspect of it, learning to cope with stressful situations, helping the individual manage different emotional dysregulation. But then in my area, um, you know, I specialize primarily, I do see some patients for therapy. We do have a lot of therapists within our office, but I specialize in the testing aspect of it. So I I provide different assessments, evaluations to better understand different cognitive factors or emotional factors to get a better quantitative understanding of what the patient is struggling with. That's great because I think the biggest step is the diagnosis. Um, Like you mentioned, a lot of families struggle with that initial step. Um, A lot of it, a lot of worries that we see from parents is, are they going to be labeled? Is this going to affect them in the future? Um, you know, they notice that their children might have difficulties in certain aspects, um, but a lot of times getting them to uh, go through that evaluation, you know, really comes from our end to say, you know, uh, the, the therapies and what you do is only going to help, you know, it's only going to help them reach their maximum potential. And um, one thing that we start uh, early screening for is autism and ASD in our population. But as you know, we're so limited in our time. <laughs> we're so limited. We kind of have to assess the patient fairly quickly in our 10, 15 minutes and then get them to the right place. Um, and so a lot of parents ask us about these signs early on you know, when children are starting to socialize. So what are some early signs of autism and ASD that, that you notice? Yeah. So, you know, we have the developmental period that some kids, and it's not so black and white, but we, there's a range, right? So we know kids usually start cooing around, around like what, six to eight weeks, babbling between six to nine months. Um, but it's when we see these changes, we can see them early on. We just can't make a diagnosis of autism. And sometimes when kids are have milder symptoms of autism, then we may not even notice such changes or difficulties until they're a little bit older, like maybe around three, four, five, or even someone's even older than that, right? Elementary school. Even though the, some difficulties may be present early on, they just may not be caught early. Um, but some things that we may look for could be, you know, if a child isn't babbling, that's something to keep an eye on, right? If a parent comes in and they're concerned that their child is a more late to babble, um, that's definitely could be an indicator of speech delay later on though, right? Because we're not diagnosing speech delay at six months or nine months. We're looking at when they come in, maybe that one year mark and seeing different factors, right? 
Um, we're also looking for um, the child's eye contact. We know that children can start making really good eye contact at three months. Again, a child may not make eye contact right away, but we're looking at how how is that? And also there's a lot of, because children aren't, you know, they don't have words. They're not saying words, they're babbling, they're crying, they're cooing. They're also, but they mostly communicate before H1 non-verbally, right? So we're looking at the eye contact, but also not just eye contact, but are they also responding to a social smile? If you're, you know, changing your child's diaper, for instance, and you're looking at them and you're smiling, are they smiling back at you? Or if you're looking across the room and you're using your eyes to communicate, we call that like a joint attention. Are you both communicating with your eyes and are you able to reference the same object? So what we do is like, you know, when, even when we're doing an evaluation, now we don't do evaluations until the child's 12 months and walking, but when we're, things to look out for could be, you know, if you're looking at the child and say, look over there and you're moving your eyes over to the side, is the child able to then follow your eye gaze? So it's not just, you know, some parents will say, yeah, yeah, they make really great eye contact. We want to know how is that eye contact really being initiated? Are they able to really follow your eye gaze? Are they reciprocating a smile? Are they able to, if you hold up an object and you hold it out to the side, are they able to look at the object, look back at you, look at the object like saying, yes, like referencing with their eye gaze, like this is something that I do want. Um, also gestures, right? waving goodbye, waving hi, shaking head yes or no. They may not be able to say yes or no yet, but definitely that comes beforehand. Um, reciprocal communication also comes before expressive. So that's part of that reciprocal understanding could be nonverbal, right? Following directions, asking for things, asking a child to do things, right? Are you hungry? And having the child maybe go sit down or follow some type of direction, maybe a one-step direction at such a young age. Um, also pointing is a gesture, right? So we look to see, can the child point not just up close to things in a book, but are they able to point to things across the room that they want to? And are they able to point and look at you and look back? Because again, we're looking at that nonverbal communication. We're also looking at the child's play because children typically start engaging in some type of pretend play very early on, right? And it could be very minimal, like just taking maybe a bottle, putting it to the baby's baby doll's mouth or something, pretending to take a sip out of a cup. It could be very small things, but these are things you want to start looking out for. Or is a child only engaging in some type of repetitive play um, where they could just be lining up blocks or hitting toys repetitively or not playing really with the full functionality of that object? Um, we do want to see children typically move from one toy to the next. You know, parents may say, my child can't really sit still or they can't focus on any toy for such a long time. Well, that's actually pretty typical of development. We do want to see children go in and explore a variety of toys, especially if they're coming into our room or a new play area. They don't, they, we don't typically see them fixated on one toy. They may have a preference to a toy, but we do want to see the child explore throughout the room um, rather than just sit there and then fixate on a toy. Um, sometimes you also see too, like sleep issues. Now that's a tricky one to really comb through because I feel like, you know, even my kids, you know, I have a child who's 19 months and that son was going to be four in December and they still don't sleep through the night. One of them is always waking. They, they, both, they both wake up at least one time in the night, but we want to look at the sleep patterns of them, right? It's because obviously that's a difficult thing to comb through because all babies are not sleeping technically through the night. You know, not every single baby I'm sure you hear when they come in. So every child has a different sleep pattern, but we want to see is the child colicky? Are they fussy? Are they just not able to self-soothe or just fall asleep in general? What does that sleep pattern look like? Are they having a hard time falling asleep? Because we know that autistic kids do have a hard time falling asleep. They're waking several times even throughout the night. Um, so those are things also, also to look out for.
Yeah, I, I love that. That was a really good explanation. And I, I do want to touch um, a little bit on the eye contact bit a little bit more, because I feel that is a really um, elusive concept for some parents sometimes. And you did a really good job of explaining like what exactly we mean when we say, when we ask the question, are they making eye contact? Because a lot of the times children who are on the spectrum will make eye contact, but it is actually not a social interaction for them. Uh, and the way I explain it, and I don't know if it makes sense to my patients or my audience, but I'll say that oftentimes children who are on the spectrum, they will, they, they, they will use their parents as objects. And yeah. so they're looking at you, but they're actually kind of looking through you. Uh, they're not having that reciprocal uh, interaction where you feel like you are socializing when you're doing it. So they do look at you, but it is kind of like a really blank look on their face. Um, and they're just, it's almost like they're trying to decipher what you are, not that they're mimicking your facial expressions or that you've created a connection. And another thing that I feel they do oftentimes in the, in the way that they kind of use people as objects in, and it confuses parents oftentimes is the leading them to something. So children not, I mean, a lot of children do this, and this is a main thing that I hope parents will understand that having one or two features does not mean your child is autistic. It's a big variety of things put together and you need a specialist exactly like yourself to put all of that with your education level together to make the diagnosis. So one or two random things here and there doesn't mean anything bad, but, you know, just keep these things at the back of your mind. But a lot of times children who are on the spectrum will grab their parents' hand, lead them to the pantry or the fridge, and then point to what they want. Um, whereas what we're looking for, especially at a certain age, is them trying to vocalize that or them trying to grab your attention in some way um, and then vocalize that. And then so, and I really like the fussiness aspect of what she stated as well, because we all know that children who are on the spectrum have exhibited signs from birth. And then for everybody, hindsight's 2020. Later on, when things are kind of coming together and we're at a developmentally appropriate age to make the diagnosis, then all those little tiny things start to make sense. But extreme fussiness is, is a big one too, uh, because they've never been been able to communicate their needs. They've always been uh, disconnected socially. And so then it starts to make sense like, ah, you know, maybe it wasn't colic back in the day. So that's a really good, I mean, thank you so much for kind of going through that in depth. And I think and hope people will listen to this and remember that just because your child stacks toys, that's not necessary um, to say that, you know, they're, they have that diagnosis. It's just tiny little pieces of the puzzle that a, a psychologist um, or a diagnostician can put together after a lot of, of uh, observation, right? Like your diagno diagnosis process takes how long? Um, so it varies. So if it's for a child who's very young, um, you're typically under age four or three and may have even some speech delay, we would do an hour-long parent intake session. We would do the hour-long, we give the ADOS in our in our um, office. So that takes about an hour. Then we score and give feedback, which takes another hour. And then we write up the report. So we are seeing them at least for three hours um, from the intake to the feedback. And then also the time that it takes, which is you a couple hours to write up the report. Now, if it's somebody who's a little bit older, who may have some milder symptoms, sometimes parents come in and they may not even be on their radar. They just come in, they're, they're saying, my child has a hard time with transitions, sensory concerns, difficulty making friends or maintaining friendships. 
Um, they, they have a hard time having back and forth conversations. And so they are coming in, they're saying, I just want to get tested for my child tested for anxiety and ADHD, which could be, you know, that definitely could be something there that we're going to roll out. But when I'm hearing these other symptoms, I'm saying, well, have you ever considered maybe possibly autism? Maybe that's something we should just rule out because these are some things that you're telling me that also are symptoms of autism that wouldn't hurt to get it ruled out as well since you're already coming in for an evaluation to look at these other concerns, which are also present, but let's look at this. Um, play is so important too. Um, I know I, I see a lot of like funny TikTok videos from just different people or like just stuff on social media where they're like, I don't like playing with my kid. It's funny, you know, I'm a mom, it's, it's draining to, to play with your child, but it is so important to observe your child's play from early on. Because even speaking as a mom, you learn so much of what's going on with your child's emotional and social development. Because if your child's struggling with something, if they're upset about something, they're going to communicate that with the characters. And one thing you notice though with autistic children is that they may be really great um, setting up a scene, you know, like taking their toys and maybe setting up the dollhouse or building these elaborate scenes, you know, to have the characters play, but then they may not actually um, take the characters and make them have a conversation. They may just kind of set it up and then you know, could just maybe be tossing it around or move on to something else. And they're really not having that social piece. They definitely have like that visual presentation of it, but then they're not really bringing forth any story to the play. And play is really important because it is a really strong social developmental part of childhood. Sensory too. So when we think about sensory concerns, we think about them in, um, you could be a sensory seeker or you could be a sensory avoider. And now you could have both or none, you know, this part of the um, diagnostic criteria for autism, but not everybody who has sensory concerns will also be autistic. But not, um, and not, you don't have to have also um, autism to have sensory, right? Because, you know, sensory can also come with anxiety or other things as well, too. But when we're looking at sensory, we're looking at, um, is a child, of, you know, they're covering their ears early on. Sometimes we see that with young toddlers. They could be so sensitive to sound. Um, or maybe they're a sensory seeker where they have to touch everything or they're taking their head and they're, they're you know, dragging their head across the room on the carpet, right? That sensory seeking to putting objects in their mouth, maybe even after age two, right? Um, so these are things as well that we want to look out for. But again, just like you said, not every, you know, if you think of one symptom, like even, you know, it could be the play or the socialization or sensory, you don't have to, that's not necessarily um, autism, but these are things that we're putting together a piece to this whole picture to make a diagnosis, making sure that if they meet all that criteria, we're going to make that diagnosis and how they also perform on the test, as well as the objective ratings from the parents and what's in their developmental history too. Yeah. Thank you for going through that because um, it's really important for us too, as pediatricians to kind of see your process. Um, and I tell parents because this information, like you mentioned with social media and being online, a lot of people are sharing their experiences, right? And it gets really overwhelming. I find for parents to be like, oh no, I have to keep track of all these things, you know? And yeah. so there was just one point that I wanted to make that you know, Sammy even mentioned is that when we go, when you go to your pediatrician's office, just know that your pediatrician is looking at all of these things. You know, we go in for five minutes and we're assessing so many developmental milestones, but it looks like we're just playing or having fun or chit-chatting, you know? And so this is where that trust comes in with your pediatrician. Definitely write. I think the biggest thing for parents is write down the concerns that you see. I'm so glad you mentioned the play therapy because that's something that me and Sammy talk about all the time. You know, start talking to your baby early, start playing with them early. Always the developmental milestones that 
you don't think, you know, that might be further down the line, it's okay engaging with them, you know, even if you don't expect them to do some of those milestones, right? Always try to go the next level up. Um, And that's only going to encourage that connection, the bond and all of that. But um, the one thing I want parents to to feel is not overwhelmed by looking for all these, because as you know, you went through many, many years of school um, to learn the diagnosis and to learn the nuances of ADHD, anxiety, autism, you know, it's such a vast topic. So I I just want to stress to parents that Trust your pediatrician when they bring up a concern for you. I wouldn't necessarily jump to a conclusion and say, okay, we're labeling the child. We're just saying that there's a couple of little things that we prefer that they get further evaluated on. And that's where you come in to help kind of delineate those things and tell us which therapies would be best for that particular child. Because every child is different. Every family is different. How they communicate is different. And so it's it's not a one size fits all. And um, it's not meant to be added stress, but just for you to be an attentive parent and, and uh, pay attention to the little things, you know. But I just wanted to say that because I know I get overwhelmed too <laughs> with all of this stuff. Yeah, but I also like how you said bring in a list, right? Because even though as a pediatrician, you said you're only seeing the child for like 15 minutes, you are still seeing the child very frequently across their development, right? It's like every, um, first it's like a, right after the the baby's born, you see them, then it's like the first, is it four weeks and then three months and so forth. And you're seeing the child pretty frequently up until that first year. And then I think it was to six months, right? So you are seeing the child, even though it's for 15 minutes, there is a lot you can still assess. Like you said, with the child's play, you're probably observing them in the room, how they're interacting with the caregiver. And as, as Dr. Sam mentioned, like even taking the parent's hand, you may even notice that. Are they taking the parent's hand and putting it over the parent's phone? And they may want the parent's phone and want it to work, right? So things like that. You're probably looking for these types of things. Um, and asking the parent if they if the child does these, like, you know, when, when I do, when I'm assessing the child on, on the ADOS, and I am looking to see it's a child we call it like showing, right? So lifting up an object and looking at you and, and showing it to you or giving you things and asking a parent if the child's doing these things may be um, overwhelming or they may be confusing for them because these aren't typically things and that you really look for in your child. Really what we look for is, is the child, well, we're looking at, are they rolling over? When is my child walking? Are they saying mama? We don't really say, oh, is your child showing objects yet? Like that's not really a developmental thing that you see really anywhere, right? These are things that professionals typically look for. But even as a pediatrician, like you said, I love the idea of writing down any type of concerns. There is such a great awareness now of autism. And I guess the plus side of social media is that we can see all these concerns that parents may see if they're reading it somewhere or seeing it in a video. And then they could then say, oh, you know what? I think that maybe my child might do some of these things. I'm going to write down some of these and bring it into my next appointment to discuss with the pediatrician. Yeah, I I agree. And we encourage lists. And I think our families are very good at writing lists in our practices. Um, But I also kind of want to piggyback on what you're both saying in that we do, we're very good at seeing children across time and we have a very limited amount of time. But as pediatricians, we have suspicion, but we don't have confirmation. 
And so we can't, we cannot make a diagnosis, uh, even of like something other than autism, like ADHD or anxiety, we can say these symptoms are suggestive of, uh, but we cannot make that diagnosis in that 15 minutes. And the reason that it's really important for um, us to kind of discern here is that I think a lot of parents feel maybe attacked or feel um, you know, offended maybe sometimes, or that we're saying that their child is not normal and it has nothing to do with that, but everything to do with the fact that if our suspicions are correct, the earlier you identify it, the better you lay a course for your child, the better the outcome will be, the better everything will be. Watch and wait in these situations. Unfortunately, science has even proven it, studies have proven it, that is not a preferred um, a preferred route. And it is very possible, you know, I hear so many people like, oh, well, his uncle didn't talk till he was four or, oh, well, his, you know, um, dad didn't even talk till he was three, but that's then <laughs> this is yeah. now we've learned a lot in that generation. And we know that it's not advisable to wait and see whether they're just going to pick it up on their own. And I always tell parents, it's like, think of it like tutoring. It's, it's just an investment in your child. And, um, I'm, I am curious though, just, and I, you could pull this number out of thin air, obviously, since it's kind of just like a random thing, but how often do you get referrals that end up actually being nothing? You're tuned in to the Wild Child Podcast brought to you by the PD Pals. The PD Pals is our passion project and not-for-profit company where we aim to educate and empower parents and guardians and offer you accessible health tips. Our mission is to also support future female doctors. We currently have interns on our team who are all at different parts of their medical school journey. If you'd like to support our mission and help with our podcasting costs, you can donate to our Venmo at the PD Pals or our Zelle, which is hello at the We greatly appreciate our audience's support. You can also support our interns on Venmo at interns-pdpals. So I will say that most of the, well, when you say absolutely nothing, do you mean like no autism or do you mean like no diagnosis at all? No diagnosis that you would say that, you know what, I, this is just, you know, normal, like a hundred percent, there's no diagnosis associated with, with your child at this time. Usually by the time they get to us, there's some diagnosis. If it's not autism, it could be speech delay, social defiant disorder. Um, it could be any of those, right? So. ADHD, um, there's usually something by the time they come to us, we're not usually the first phone call that they're making. It's usually it could be to a preschool teacher, to the pediatrician. Um, maybe they were in, maybe the pediatrician had them go to occupational therapy first. Maybe they were going through early on. We're usually one of the last calls that, they're, that their child's being seen. We're not usually the first. Even if a child's coming in, the youngest I've seen for testing so far, even though we can do 12 months, has been 14 months. Even that child was through early on. So we still weren't the first person that they saw. We're usually not the first. Um, so, and we do know, like, I mean, I just did an evaluation, for instance, last week where a child came in and um, was the parents are paying out of pocket for ABA. And that child, though, I didn't make the diagnosis of autism. It was speech delay with oppositional defiant disorder. But, but, but most kids, when they come in, I would say a higher percentage of them are having the diagnosis of autism when they're younger than not. But that's also because of the history and that's basically has, has taken place. Okay, that's really good to know. And I actually, I just thought of a question that I'm, I'm nosy about that I realized. 
do you recommend, um, say we do go ahead and, you know, someone does the traditional thing, sees you, gets a diagnosis that they're on the spectrum somehow. And quick caveat to moms and dads, no two autistic children are the same. So that's why it's a spectrum. Um, but, but do you recommend retesting every certain amount of years? When they're younger, I say it's advisable to have them come back because we're going to do any type of, you know, some type of treatment your child's going to be having now, because usually when they come to us, it's because they want, they, they want, or they need some type of services. So whatever diagnosis their the child may be receiving, even if it's on autism, there's still going to be some type of treatment, right? Because like I said, they're coming in for some type of problem or concern, even if it's something like obstetrical defined disorder, we're going to recommend parent training. And just if you'll keep an eye on some symptoms if anything was to change. Now, if it's autism, we're going to talk about different type of treatment approaches. And I do advise say you can bring the child back maybe one to, one to two years, have them come back before they start school. Then the school is going to be doing testing with them or an IEP or a 504. And we also work with the schools to do testing. So if the school is doing like an IQ or academic testing, we can then piggyback off them and say, okay, well, we'll integrate with their testing. And then we can also add in other tests like an ADOS. Now, some schools are equipped um, to test for an ADOS. But what's interesting though, what's important to recognize and remember is that an educational diagnosis of autism is different than a medical diagnosis of autism. So what I do in my practice is considered a medical diagnosis, but then for the school, it could be an educational. So if, if a parent or, or if the child needs additional services, such as, you know, they, they may qualify in school through an ADOS and through their assessment to have OT and speech or accommodations and IEP 504, but then they also may need other types of services as well. And that's where they would need the medical diagnosis through us. So they could have both designations and that would also constitute them getting retested too. So we could still use for insurance purposes, what the school used as part of our report, you know, we would just basically just put in the scores and then we would bill for our time that we did with them for like the ADOS or any other executive functioning for ruling out other factors and integrate that with the report so that the child then has that medical diagnosis. So we can, the school will, will retest the child, usually it's every couple years. And I think by the time once a child reaches a certain point, like in grade school, that's what I usually advise. But when they're very young, I say, let's still retest them to see what kind of milestones they have. Because when we're testing a child who's two years old or three years old, for instance, right? They're so young and typically they have pretty significant speech delay. And so we want to keep, now that that's just a snapshot of the child. How that child is that day is, probably going to be a lot different than how they're going to look in a year or three years, five years, 10 years from now. So a lot of times after I do the evaluation, the parents will say to me, they say, well, what does this mean for my child? Because typically when children come in, their symptoms, you know, most of the time could be moderate to more severe on the ADOS. And I say, well, this is just a, a snapshot of where your child is. They're only two or two and a half. They have speech delay. They've never had any other services. Let's give this child a shot. Let's have some hope. And Let's see where we're going to go with this and let's get them some services. What's going to work for the child. This is the snapshot. We know what's presented in the report and for these findings, but let's retest them in a year from now so we can compare where the child's at. So we have the original findings when they first came in, then we can retest them a year later to see what type of strides that they made too. Um, because there's really no way that we can predict what a child's going to look like, autistic or not. We don't know what an individual is going to look like in a year or five years from now. But what we do know is that with early intervention, the child is, there's more hope that the child can make better strides too in their development. 
Yeah, no, that's really important that you made that distinction, especially about the schools and the medical diagnosis, because a lot of times we see uh, a lot of therapists, which we're very thankful for in the schools, you know, they're checking for learning disorders, they're checking, uh, you know, they're doing that initial assessment because they see that child in a social situation. And so that's really helpful. But I still encourage parents to talk to their to us to their pediatrician to figure out if there is more therapy needed. And basically what you both alluded to was that the therapy is not going to hurt. You know, tutoring never hurt anybody. It, it only gave them better skills. It better gave them better uh, management, you know, of when the little difficulties that they might have. So even if they start speaking, you know, in six months to a year, um, there's, there's no harm done, right? Um, the other thing I wanted to just plug for parents that have children with speech de- delays initially, make sure that they've had a hearing test and your pediatrician should be ordering that. But that's one of the first things we do is to rule out hearing loss because that could be one of the early signs could be speech delay for that. So usually after we've done that, We usually send them for the full evaluation to figure out, is it only speech delay or is there additional things like oppositional defiant autism? So I just wanted to plug that in. Um, Go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, I actually saw a TikTok the other day that they were, um, I guess, making fun or whatever, you know, talking about what pediatricians do when they identify a speech delay and how overwhelming it could be to families. Like basically we're like, okay, you have a two and a half or three-year-old with a speech delay. You need this, 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 this. And we just like throw it out. And we're like, good luck. See you in six months. And it, it it's genuinely like that. But I hate to say it. It's kind of like you have to, um, you have to get the speech you have to get the hearing test. You have to get the speech therapy started as soon as possible. And then we are also sending you to someone like Dr. Cat to have an official diagnosis made and then even more treatment plan made. So it, it does really, it is a lot of things thrown at you and then a lot of follow-up. Um, it's and definitely a process. It is, it is. And it's no fun, obviously, but it's a, it's a kind of a, a lot up front, and then it kind of dwindles down later once everything's, um, you know, identified and things start to get on their way. But yeah. Yeah, as long as you recognize that the goal is only to give the child the best chance for success, because some of these children are not in daycare or they're not in school. And a lot of families will say, well, once they start daycare, they'll be fine. They'll start talking or once they start school, they'll be okay." But why take that chance? You know, when they get to school, then they have maybe potentially more anxiety, more stress, difficulty acclimating, you know, and so a, a lot of times it takes Uh, you know, a lot of reassuring from our end that, you know, these things might just resolve and it'll be fine, but we rather, you know, play it safe on the front end than later when they're having trouble in school, you know, uh, socializing and things like that. So, no, I'm glad you guys mentioned that. Now, after the diagnosis has been made, let's say for autism um, or a spectrum, I know it's very different for every child, um, but do you have tips for those parents, um, of how they can help uh, for those children in the classroom and at home and what teachers can do. Any little pearls you have will be great. Yeah, so the first thing I always talk about with parents is what type of services are we gonna, you know, let's look at the different types of treatment and service options for that child. Because as you said, when we're giving them all these options and even I will talk about all these options with the parents, but I really want the parent to be the big, the strongest advocate for their child and to be that determiner of which 
type of service or treatment or facility they want to send their child to. You know, I do network with a lot of different clinics within the area, um, but I always tell parents, I know this clinic as a professional. My child does not actually go to this clinic. So what I also advise parents is to, there's a lot of Facebook groups out there, a lot of social media stuff. So I say, go and join some type of support group, like on Facebook or something within the area. I have some recommendations I give them to go check them out. These are some clinics near your house. If you live in X city, maybe you want to go and ask them if they have, you know, Hey, I just had a doctor. My child was just diagnosed. Um, and these are private groups usually, right? So it's not like it's, if they're not willing to share their diagnosis with the whole world for their child, then these groups are private. So it's only the people in the group are going to see it. It's not like it's going to post across their, their feed too. I always tell them. So if they want to join this group then they would then pose the question, you know, I, I my child just received this diagnosis. I'm considering ABA, OT, speech, or play therapy for my child. Um, these are the clinics that were recommended within my area. What is your experience with them? And then that kind of gives them more of the parent approach from it, like the parent's experience and with their child. Then I also recommend the parents then ask questions on um, any type of concerns they have about a certain treatment because there's different pros and cons to every treatment. There's different information out there. I have them, you know, we discuss that within the office, but then I also have them ask those questions and concerns. Like if they're worried about a certain treatment being more harmful for their child, they can go and address that with that particular clinic. Um, because I usually only recommend them, them clinics that I know person that we have had patients to. And if it's not one that I've heard of that they have personally found, I say, well, I have not go check it out yourself. I also always recommend the parent bring the child when they go and tour the facility, because when you're having a child with autism or a developmental disability, it's going to be a very, um, long commitment too. It takes a lot of hours, a lot of time. You may have another child at home too. So I always have them, you know, go to the facility. The child's going to be spending a lot of their time there. And that's what I would do as a parent. If my child needs services, I put, try to put myself in the parents choose to like, what would I do? Well, I would want to go and ask these questions. I would interview them because they're interviewing the clinic, right? They're interviewing these, these professionals and see how are they interacting with that child? Um, how was the child interacting in that environment? You know, um, because there are so many different different options out there. Also, um, you know, the parent support is one thing, but sibling support is also really important too, because we know the research for siblings is that they're at greater risk of having anxiety and depression when they have a sibling with a neurodevelopmental disorder too. So we can't forget the siblings in the process. And especially when you have two siblings that are close in age, and when you go to these like OT or ABA centers, they look really fun. There's like ball pits, there's like games all over the place, right? I mean, they're colorful and the, you know, they get to use all these really cool like fidgets and sensory stuff. And that's cool for kids. It's really appealing, right? Like every kid, autistic or not, loves bubble fidgets, sensory toys, right? I mean, my kids love that stuff. So they go there and they're probably thinking, why does my sibling get to go and play at these facilities and I have to go and do work at home or something, right? So it's good to have the open communication with the other children in the home, talk about you know, what the child is struggling with, why they have to go to these services, but also make sure that that child doesn't feel left out in any way too. And it, I know it's a lot for parents to go and balance it out and say, well, I have to, this child ha has more needs, but then we also can't forget the other children at home too, and make this a family approach. Some clinics as well do um, sibling groups too, which is really great because they have the siblings come in. So that's another thing parents can ask about. Do they do anything for family, siblings, or parents? They, they might do a parent workshop where they're talking to the parents about, how to communicate with that child. One thing I always recommend is breaking down the communication so it's simple and short, concrete. 
So, you know, when we're giving a child a direction, a child of, you know, younger child or child with any type of delays, and you're saying, go get your shoes, we're going to be late, my car's already on, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be snowing outside. And that's a lot of information for a child, right? You're just basically just word vomiting how you're feeling as a parent being stressed, right? I mean, truth be told. But if you go and just break it down, take a breath and say, go get your shoes, go get your shoes. And just repeating that short direction, the child's more likely to listen, whether they're having to filter out all the other information. So keeping the communication with that child, simple, short, concrete, is going to help them better follow directions too, as well as learning. When you're teaching them different, if the child has any type of language delay, um, you know, you can have just certain keywords like, let's go, here we go, right? And just keeping go as one. So they're kind of learning that and referencing what that word then means too. Also trying to understand what the child's triggers are because a meltdown for a child can be very scary and lonely. And when we think about an autistic person's brain, it's already in hyperdrive, right? When the senses start coming in. So if there's any type of change in routine or sensory overload, it's going to put that brain and those, uh, you know, the, uh, into overload as well too. So we need to figure out what are these triggers for the child? Let's minimize that. In the classroom too, I mean, we can minimize any type of triggers, any type of sensory overload for them. Give them, if a child's more of a sensory seeker, we can give them fidgets, like those bubble fidgets are really big right now. Um, usually every kid that comes into our office for testing, we give them one to just take home and use during the testing to kind of help them. Um, any type of like those like squish toys they can have. Now I have had some children come in and they're more kinesthetic, right? They like to get up, move around. And while that may help their learning, it might be distracting other children's learning in the classroom too. So what I always advise is, well, the teacher can do things where the child isn't getting like pointed out to like, oh, sit down, sit down, right? And the child can then, we can use that kinesthetic type movement that they need and maybe have the child when the teacher has to pass out worksheets saying, hey, little Johnny, can you come and pass out these worksheets in the class for us, right? Can you come and help me over here? Getting the child to get up and move or giving the child some type of breaks throughout the day. We know that children tend to be a little bit more silly or more active after lunch. So making sure that, you know, if there is going to be OT, that the child is going to qualify for services, maybe we have the OT after lunch so that that can then calm the child's nervous system down too. Visuals at home or at school can also be very helpful for children who are more visual, having a more predictable schedule. Um, Sometimes I've seen in some schools, they also do social groups in the school for the kids. Um, having a mentor, you know, could be something too, you know, having one child who, you know, maybe pairing all the kids together in a classroom, you know, to help with that as well. So there are a lot of things that really don't take a lot of effort, but it's more just thinking outside the box and really just helping the parents and the school work together to see what's going to really help the child succeed. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a couple of things I wanted to emphasize in, in what you said. Um, the first being that we talked a little bit about parents who maybe were caught off guard with the concerns brought forth by a medical professional, but there are actually another subset of parents too that have always had concerns about their child and then feel that their concerns are not being heard. Please don't give up. Um, you can continuously bring it up with your pediatrician, or you don't even have to have our blessing. If you're feeling like you're not getting heard, you can go straight to somebody like Dr. Cat. You don't need us to be a middle person. So if you have concerns and you're like, I feel like my child has anxiety or autism or sensory issues or blah, blah, blah. No one's listening to me. I'm worried. Just go straight to a psychologist. Um, insurances cover a lot of them already. You can ask your insurance what's covered and what's not, and you can go directly to the source and then tell them their concerns. That's the first thing. 
And then the second is um, that when you were talking about the kids in the classroom and how you were saying, like, encouraging teachers to kind of use their, um, their, I like to call it their skill set, because like, they're really good at being active, not that they're bad at sitting down. And I think that the way that you frame that is so important to kids so that they're not constantly hearing negative thoughts. It's not that little Johnny can't sit down and you're constantly saying, sit down, sit down. It's that little Johnny's really good at moving. So we're going to use that to our advantage. And and then that way, these children are hearing the same set of positive messaging toward them. And we're amplifying their strengths as opposed to trying to put a square peg into a round hole. Um, So I think those are really important to outline too. And I I love that you touched on all of that. And um, I was just looking at the time and I'm like, oh my God, we still have so much we could talk about, but um, we could talk to you all day. And and hopefully if we can get our three lives to coordinate again, um, we can have you in for a part two. Maybe yeah, talk about other things because um, we've loved having you on there on here. Um, but before we do wrap it up, can you please tell uh, our listeners and our followers, like, where can they find you and any last words of wisdom? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the biggest thing is just that I want parents to have hope of their child's progress. I don't want them to lose sight of any type of hope, you know, when they get this diagnosis. Um, you know, even if it's something that parents have, as you said, like, had an inkling for it, their child may have this diagnosis, they still may lose hope. And I don't want them to lose hope because they are their child's biggest advocate. They will always be their child's biggest advocate. They are the one that has to fight for their child, right? So it's so important for the parents to stay strong and to really just connect with other parents, other providers in the community, step and do their research, ask questions. You know, I don't know any professional that would ever shoot down. I know I know myself, I don't think you guys would do that either. Anyone, any parent's gonna ask you a question of what should I do? What do you recommend? you know, that would ever shoot down a question. No question is a bad question. So I hope that parents, you know, definitely don't feel um, worried or scared to ask a question. They should always ask any question about their child's development um, at any time and never feel shut down. Like if their child's not getting certain services in school, they're still going to have to advocate for that child too. Um, So those I think are the biggest takeaways and just working as a full family systems approach too, so that all family members really feel like they're working together throughout the process of this. Um, as far as where everyone can find me, um, this has been really great. And I really hope that we can meet and talk again. So I'm on social media. It's Dr. Kat underscore Saidi. And that's D-R-K-A-T underscore P-S-Y-D. Perfect. Thank you so much. I know you've been a wealth of information to us and to the to the people listening. So thank you for all that you do and for all the help. And we can't wait for a part two. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. 
All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts. 